Joe Stetcher was the champion, but maybe so was Ed Lewis? And who else would make a wild claim to the title? Let's find out when we talk about the year 1926. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed the button. You downloaded the show. Maybe you didn't download it. Maybe you're just streaming. Make sure you're on Wi-Fi. This is a big show. You don't want to blow through your data. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling booker, a promoter, but more importantly for today, I am here with the Burt to my Ernie. It's Chongo Bronson. How the heck are you, man? Better than that grouch in front of the building. Can't we call, like, I don't know, the Snuffleupagus or somebody to take care of that dribble? He's such a grouch. And we are, he is the bird to my Ernie, and it's you, the audience, that makes bath time so much fun. What a weird, creepy thing to say. We're getting <laughs> off on the wrong foot. So we're going to focus things back in and talk about the year 1926 in pro wrestling. Because if this is your first time downloading the show, this is your first time visiting us on the Hippodrome Express, welcome. We love you. Thanks for stopping by. But if you don't know... Who these people are, if the names Ed Lewis and Joe Stetcher and Stanislaw Zabisco, etc., they don't mean anything to you yet. You might want to hit pause, go back several episodes, start with either the Ed Lewis series or go all the way back to the Stanislaw Zabisco episode, because this has been one big crazy tale, taking things from the post Gotch Hackenschmidt era into the Gold Dust Trio days, and we are in the year 1926, and what a ride it has been. Yeah, this is like, you know. Two-thirds, three-quarters through the Infinity War, man. You got to go back and see when, like, Tony Stark was still, like, a, a, a bloodthirsty capitalist until he got blown up with his own gimmick. And, like, you got to, you got to, I mean, I would, one would assume if you found the show, you want to know about some pro wrestling's history. So go back and hear the history that we built to now so you can properly appreciate the crescendo we are building to, nerds. And speaking of bloodthirsty capitalists, this is definitely going to be a story of those. There is only so much money on the table at, at any given moment in pro wrestling, and everybody was trying to grab an armful. And some people may be listening to this show and saying, you know what, according to this biography, that happened at this point and didn't mean this. Or according to this interview I once upon a time found on YouTube, this was because of this and hows and whys. And a lot of this is because wrestling is a kind of a secret art. There was closed doors to the business, at least there were in these days. So we're going off of the source material, the the newspaper articles. The, you can actually find a lot of the matches we talk about today in clips on YouTube. Um, I'm doing the best I can because we don't have a dog in the fight, if you will. I'm not trying to put over our trainer like Luthez was with Ed Lewis. I'm not trying to make my past exploits um, bigger and better because the guy who was also there is dead the way Hackenschmidt did. I'm just trying to tell objective history with the best information I can, and hopefully we are pretty gosh darn close to the money every time. Yeah, and you know, I have to question anybody who's trying to poke holes in the validity of the, you know, the story. That sounded awful, awful suspicious like police, old chap. These are carnies from the hustling era, man. You're lucky to get the same story from two guys on the same work. This is three-card Monty a hundred years ago, so you're lucky to get this, nerds. I'm sorry, I just get worked up when you feel you need to defend your work, your, your archaeological diggery. So we now have the remaining pieces on the board. We have Joe Stetcher as the biggest draw in the business with the championship belt around his waist. Sure, it was his old belt from Omaha that the fans gave him, but it still was the world championship. We have Ed Lewis, who had dropped the belt to Wayne Munn, who got screwed out of the title by Zabisco, but Ed Lewis is still carrying around his belt that he won in St. Louis. We have background players like John Pesek and Stanislaw Zabisco, who is not doing a whole lot because he was kind of on the fringe of the business at this point, but the wrestling business was hot. L.A. was on fire under Lou Darrow. There was controversy. There was combat. There was conspiracies. And that sounds like a lot of fun to me. Yes, that's just the, the kind of chess 
board we're looking at going into 1926 pickup mistakes. But one thing that needs to be emphasized in Chongo's opinion is you don't count out a Sandow. And what we have also come to is where the tide has turned and Sandow is now on the outside. You have the ultimate string puller and a lot of player haters have joined forces to get him on the outside with the strangler and they've got their angle. They've got their title. Let's see what the man can do to pull off the magic. And speaking of the kind of the minor pieces on the board, on January 18th at the Olympic Auditorium, the Nebraska Tiger Man, John Pesek, beat Canadian wrestler Jack Sampson. Leading up to the match, Pesek was seen training with Jack Dempsey at the Manhattan Gymnasium, and that's Manhattan Beach, not Manhattan, New York, you silly goose. And Pesek put away the much bigger Canadian in two straight falls. And according to the San Bernardino County Sun, quote, the wrestlers on 15 occasions tossed each other out of the ring into the laps of the ringside spectators and gained a great deal of press and attention from the California fans. Well, as any uh, uh, studier of zoology can tell you, there are no tigers in Canada. So the clear advantage was going to go to the Tiger Man. I could have told you that from jump. Despite the size of the larger opponents, it's just more meat on the bone for the picking. But yeah, man, California is hot. And when San Bernardino is chiming in, you know things are getting serious, darling. Yes, Pesic was having a very good run. He connected with the Los Angeles audience, his ferocious style and loving of doing crazy bumps to the outside, just connected with the crowd that showed up to Darrow's auditorium. And Stetcher, on February 1st, Joe Stetcher was in New York City for Jack Curley against Yvonne Podubny in front of a sellout crowd of 10,000 people. If you're wondering what the hell is an Ivan Podubny, he was a legendary Greco-Roman wrestler born in the western part of the Russian Empire, which by 1926 was the Soviet Union and today is part of Ukraine. Though various papers refer to him as Russian, Polish, or strangely enough, French, he was universally billed as the European champion because of course he would be. I like how he was also French. Yeah. He, he probably just got tired of telling everybody this nuance of like, I, my land has been occupied by three different regimes in my lifetime. I don't know when you, you know, what do you want to call me? I'm French, damn it. I, I don't think that came from him. I think that was just the press giving zero shits. It's like, it's like, where is he? Russian, German? Yeah, fuck, you know, because I can almost understand the Polish or if you were saying he was Estonian, like, you know, Hackenschmidt was. But just like, yeah, French. That's over there somewhere, right? Yeah, he's French, just fucking printed. I don't give a shit. I want to go home. Podubny is one of those fascinating Eastern European wrestlers whose biography is endless tall tales, much like his contemporaries George Lurick, Stanislaw Zabisco, and George Hackenschmidt. Podubny was nearly 60 at the time, so this is more a testament to Stetcher's drawing power. The New York Daily News mocked the match, quote, Things go along beautifully for days and days and get all the breaks and you are just beginning to believe in Santa when along comes Joe Stetcher and throws Yvonne Podubny and spoils everything. Yes, everything. It isn't that wrestling gets a figure as picturesque to contemplate as Yvonne Podubny and what a gorgeous name. Say it over, Yvonne Podubny. Any man would be a fool not to turn wrestler with a name like that. But it doesn't matter now. For the first time in his entire career, we are informed, Ivan Podubny's shoulders were pinned to the mat. Nothing matters now. End quote. How dramatic! How dramatic can you be while being that sarcastic? Dude, I want to follow that guy's blog. But seriously, though, like, I mean, there's so much to dissect out of that. Like, how, okay, first of all, you're the one who just ruined Santa, homie. I didn't hear Podubny giving up the giving the Iggy on old Saint Nick. Yeah, I, I just love the mockery in that because you can just see the the sports writer rolling his eyes and just making the jerk off sign while typing that out. Because Podubny, granted, he was a legitimate old world Greco Roman guy, but who was billed as undefeated ever, ever. 
And of course, it's Joe Stetcher, who after a epic battle is the one that pins his shoulders down. So it really was just taking this old man, this old style wrestler, and turning him into like a a legendary stepping stone. It's like if you bring somebody back from an old pay-per-view from WCW that nobody ever fucking saw, so nobody actually cares about. Yeah, it's just a, another head that they can name, a na- another notch on the gun, head on the mantle, and a name they can say that they beat that had some sort of, like, cachet at some point, supposedly. But I will say this, though. The one thing that does suck about this, every once in a while, there's that old-ass man that could really whoop the shit out of some young, bad, bad motherfucker, and in that framework, you might not believe that Randy Couture really beat Tim Sylvia if you were watching it through that lens. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can ask Wayne Munn about Stanislaw Zabisco. It's a very similar thing for those of us who uh, have have done the the judo, the jiu-jitsu, the sambo game. There's a little thing we call old man strength. And there is just something about that tendon strength of a 50-year-old who has been gripping a gi or grabbing a wrist since he was 12 years old that you cannot replicate in the gym in a short amount of time. Muscles fade, tendons don't, and if he gets a hold of you and wants to do something with you, there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah, especially when their style is Greco, because Greco is like conducive. It's like the ultimate old man strength martial art. Basically, if the guy is old enough to have cauliflower face, he's old enough to grab you and turn you into a pretzel still if he knows what he's doing. It doesn't matter if he's 75, 80. That guy, you don't lose that part. Like, he's still going to be able to chop down trees, and you're not as strong as a tree, old chap. Well, whether it was through the desire of getting paid or just not wanting to test a young catch guy, Padubny did the the right thing, if you will, and laid down in the middle of the ring. And here's one you're going to love. Uh, also on February 1st, but in Wichita, John Pesek versus Ad Santel for promoter Tom Law. Pesek won the second and third fall to get the win in a high-paced technical bout that the fans loved. According to the Victoria Advocate, quote, Santel won the Jiu-Jitsu Championship of the World in a bout at Los Angeles a few nights before, and although crippled in this match, kept his engagement with Pesek. So, I had not really heard about this, but Santel was claiming to be the World Jiu-Jitsu Champion, and all I could think is, like, did he beat a one of those, like, traveling judo workers from the uh, Kodakon that we occasionally come across? But no. Santel had gone to Japan in 1921 and had competed against many original students from the Kodokan Judo School with great success. The Los Angeles Evening Post on January 21st, 1926 stated that, quote, It held the same effect on the Japanese as it would have in this country if the Pittsburgh Pirates were defeated in a baseball game by an English cricket team. So, of course, he was promoted as the Jiu-Jitsu World Champion and was booked against Professor Ota, where they went to a draw at the Olympic Auditorium. So much to unpack. So much to unpack in that one paragraph. Wow, so it was like proto-Eddie Bravo getting the, getting the American name on the flag against the like structure of Jiu-Jitsu hierarchy. Right? The the kayfabe story of the hierarchy of where jiu-jitsu comes from. Yeah, so there's all these layers wow. where where if you look at it one way, Santel went to Japan as a, a catch-wrestling competitor who was burning to learn the secrets of the Orient and competed against the judo men in their own backyard and was victorious. He was the last samurai who you know, conquered, conquered Japan at its own game and then came back claiming to be the judo slash jujitsu world champion and was defeating all the Kodokan men who would come over to tour and do exhibitions. But also, did he? Like, I, I, w- I, I would love to try to find the Japanese source material if it even fucking exists because this is the early 1920s. This trip apparently took place in 1921. What are the odds that Santel just stayed home reading a book, tending to his garden for a few months, and showed up with some medals he bought at a pawn shop? Well, then that guy's a hell of a worker because he just he just talked himself into a main event match in in one of the hotbeds of the country at the time. And man, it wouldn't be the first time that somebody fakes some jujitsu valor 
with a couple of, you know, after reading a couple technique manuals and walked in, tried to claim they were the man. And I'm not saying there is evidence that Santel faked all this. It's like anything in pro wrestling. Everything is 50% true, 50% bullshit to make it 100% pro wrestling. So I'm sure he did go to Japan. I'm sure whatever he did there did not match the stories he told when he came back. Because you know what? Back in 1921, you could go anywhere you like, come back and say whatever you could say, and who the hell is going to call you a liar? Yeah, I don't, I, I'm calling him a liar because I don't think they even had, like, cars to drive to Japan at that time. I mean, how do you even get to Japan? Yeah, they didn't have the Japanese superhighway where you could draw, drive from Hawaii to Japan like you can today. Oh, brave new world of the things we can do. Yes, clearly fake news. And on February 10th in St. Louis, Joe Stetcher beat Jim Londos in front of 12,000 people with reports of thousands more being turned away. Like I said, Joe Stetcher was red hot as a champion because he was a babyface champion. We had dealt with years of Ed Lewis being the 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 villain, the heel that everybody booed and then got bored of. And then we had that brief Wayne Mund thing, which made the whole business look bad, followed by Zabisco as, you know, the old man of the ring that nobody really cared to pay to see. And now we have Joe Stetcher, the return of the king. He has the belt. He has the title. He is putting on crackerjack matches every single time he steps into the ring. He is what wrestling needed. He is what the fans wanted. It reminds me of like a modern situation with like Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan from a few years ago where they had this marquee star, like the, the top guy in the business, which would be like the Cena or whatever. And then he goes on and he's not hot anymore. And they try to manufacture this star to take his place. And that doesn't take. It gets rejected by the industry. And the guy who comes along to sort of kill that dragon and take the, take the mantle that guy becomes the man because the, the Munn was getting forced down everyone's throats and nobody bought it and it hurt the business. So the guy that got rid of Munn, he was beloved, you know? Yeah, he brought a legitimacy. He brought charisma. He brought the, the wrestling back to pro wrestling. He was what the business needed to give it new legs, give it new life, while Lewis and Sandow were trying to find whatever weird trick they could find to try to get that spot back. Because keep in mind, the Stetcher group and the Sandow group refused to do business with, with each other for years, and that's kind of what got everybody into this situation. And one weird, carny little trick that I actually found a little discomforting on February 20th, Sandow got some photos of Ed Lewis with Frank Gotch Jr. And no, that's not a fake Gotch gimmick, which should shame everyone involved. It was an attempt to exploit Frank Gotch's now 12-year-old son, which should shame everyone involved. They claimed that Lewis was taking Frank Jr. under his wing and will turn him into a champion. Papers like the Evansville Press published the photo of Lewis with a paternal arm around young Frank Jr., who, quote, someday hopes to possess the laurels once held by his illustrious dad. And if you don't feel like Googling Frank Jr.'s career, don't bother. It didn't happen. It was an exploitive move that feels ugly even for wrestling. Yeah, but nothing's new in showbiz, darling. That's about 89% of child stars and or second generation talents. It's like, you know, um, what's that movie with Daniel Day-Lewis where he has the kid so he can sell, like, oil? Oh, There Will Be Blood? Yeah, you know, that's that. he's running that gimmick, eh? Yeah, you know, Frank Gotch, uh, is, uh, Frank Gotch Jr. or Sandow is trying to tell Stetcher I drank up all your milkshake. On February 24th, John Pesek beat Stanislaw Zabisco in St. Louis. Zabisco getting a rare high-level match, losing two out of three falls to the Tiger Man. But it's good to see Zabisco getting work despite his position as jobber restored. He is back to being just grateful to get a payday. Sure, he had money in the bank. He's trying to eke out whatever he can. His days are definitely numbered, and this is one of the few times you'll see him popping up at a main event. Well, you know, the Tiger Man is over, as they say, so if you're trying to give this guy a payday on the back end to take care of somebody who did business, 
on their way out. This is the way to get them done because Tiger Man is over. Let me say that again. Well, and also, I just thought about this. I also feel like Pesic is one of the few guys they could trust to put in with Zabisco. Because yeah, if Zabisco, totally. he, he now has, he, his reputation in the business is ruined. He double-crossed Ooh. his booker. He double-crossed his promoter. He did one of the unforgivable sins. He did the, essentially, if it was a mob movie, he shot a made guy in the back. But he is still a little bit of a name. He's a little bit of a draw. And if you put him in the ring with John Pesek, he's not going to pull shit with Pesek because you're a fucking lunatic to pull shit with Pesek. Yeah, you might be crazy, but you're no Tiger Man, darling. And I mean, it's a great matchup. It makes a lot of sense, and they are giving him some love, making him look strong there against one of the one of the hottest draws in the game. So it's like, at least they're not complete. They didn't they didn't treat him like a guy who double crossed the dawn. They they didn't take him out to the desert and leave him there. They're at least giving him a retirement plan. And in a weird head to head. Everybody loves a good story where promoters run in the same town on the same day. No bad feelings there. Not even when it happens in this era. Oh no, everybody loves it when two promoters go head to head on the same day in the same town. Because the Stetchers and the Sandow group ran against each other in Chicago on March 1st. Again, typical wrestling move. Joe Stetcher took on George Calza, who didn't show up, so Renato Gardini stepped in to take his place. This was still a played-out match and only drew 1,500. Meanwhile, Ed Lewis and Stasiak drew 9,000, so Chicago was still very much an Ed Lewis town. It's one of the few that was. So they would come out to see Lewis. They still appreciated Stetcher, but I feel that when you, they found out his opponent was... Uh, somebody he's wrestled a million times, interest fell through the fucking floor. That's why you always want to lie, 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 lie. If you want an example, watch the UFC where Kevin Randleman slipped on some bars backstage, knocked himself out. They had all the time in the world to mention in the pre-show before the pay-per-view. They did not. Surprise, we have your money. Here's a last-minute replacement. Suck it. Card subject to sit, to change, and we didn't say when, nerds. But, you know, I do smell a bit of a Sandow maybe in the background because the mysterious little little nuanced detail there is was this switch of an opponent. What is it? Was he, he just didn't show up or he, he decided to no show, no call, no tell? Or what? No idea. It's something where all I could find is that, uh, that Gaza just did not show up and they had to replace him with whomever was nearby. That happened to be Gardini. And again, everybody has seen that match a million times while Stasiak was still a little bit fresh in that city. Yeah, I think maybe there's a reason that the main event fresh opponent didn't show up. And it, I think that reason rhymes with uh, Mandow. Oh, you and your conspiracies. Speaking of conspiracies, here's one to kind of ponder. On March 7th, 1926, found articles announcing that Billy Sandow had purchased Toots Mont's contract from Ralph Mont, Joe's brother. At this point, most of the wrestling world operated on a handshake deal, so my assumption is that Toots wasn't very happy about how things had been handled with the Wayne Munn fiasco, and this was Sandow patting his pocket to make up for it. According to the St. Louis Globe Democrat, Sandow purchased the contract, which still had three years on it, and the Kansas City Star proclaimed that Sandow says he believed Mont is of championship material, and again, this is has so much to unpack because the men had been partners for years behind the scenes. Mont, in addition to being a great wrestler, one thing I commend him for the more I read about him is how hard he kayfabed the entire goddamn sporting press and wrestling world. Because if you just knew wrestling, you knew Toots Mont, wrestler. You never heard Toots Mont Booker. You never heard Toots Mont strategist. You never heard Toots Mont innovator of the sport. It was he was very much keeping all of that separated. And if this contract sale were real, then I have a feeling it was him being mad at the business model and Sandow trying to keep him locked in through an unhappy period. Or it might have been a work to try to make it seem like he's building up Toots for a promised title run if they got the 
belt back from Stetcher or whatever happened. A lot of layers. Kind of what's your take on it? How does it feel to you? I feel like it's probably a little bit of each because Sandow is that guy who thinks of things in multi-levels at once, right? He, several levels of analysis. He's looking for his future top draw. He's looking for the guy that doesn't have the the dirt on his name right now. And like you said, you know, uh, he's been able, Toots has been able to sort of stay clear of all of that and keep the highest level of his name and respect throughout this entire thing. He's been built up as a guy in the conversation of could, you know, one of the, you know, top three or four contenders for the title. He hasn't been spoiled in any way, and he's kind of got the political grace. And sometimes in pro wrestling, those are the things that matter more than who's necessarily the best guy. It's who's the most right guy for the opportunity on those kind of business layers. Yeah, because you have to keep in mind what a fiasco the Wayne Munn situation was, and Mont and Lewis had the entire time been saying, this is a bad idea, this is a bad idea, this is a bad idea, and then when it goes wrong, you're still in business with these people. You still have to go to work the next day with them. It's not like when uh, Kimbo Slice got knocked out with a jab and the whole business collapses. There is still a what do what are we doing next week, next month, next year element to this. Yeah, and, and to be fair, Tooth probably would have been the guy if it hadn't been Big Wayne Munn at that point, if they had decided to stay more on the legitimate side instead of going Sandow going full showbiz with it too early, I think you know. So it makes sense that he would be the 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 be the Sandow would align him to be the heir apparent or whatever. Right? Yeah, and and that and he was also definitely the the grouchy boy in the situation, and rightfully so. Yes. So whether Sandow intended to really title him up, really belt him up, or it was just dangling that in front of him like a carrot to keep him in line it was what was needed to do and it kind of is a move where he could play it either way as it unfolds it's a, it's a classic sandow chess move and here is an absolutely wild one i came across in steve yohei's biography of ed lewis joe stetcher agreed to wrestle an unknown wrestler in boston for a purse of eleven thousand five hundred. While Tony Stetcher was making the deal with Boston promoter Paul Bowser, he was convinced the match was against Jake Bristler and that the Stetchers could bring their own referee. The Stetchers clearly smelled something fishy in Boston on March 11th, something that wasn't coming from the docks, and said they wanted to be paid up front. Bowser now claimed that he couldn't pay Stetcher his guarantee, but offered a percentage of the house. What a promoter move. And Stetcher was already there and supposedly wrestling a nobody, so he was willing to do so. Jack Bristler was already in the ring when Stetcher made his entrance, but the Stetcher referee was stopped at the entrance and replaced with a Bowser referee. And once Stetcher was in the ring, Bristler was escorted out, and Joe Malkowitz came in out of the crowd, removed Whoa. his street clothes to reveal his trunks, and was announced as the surprise opponent. Bowser clearly needed to plan his double crosses a little bit more subtly because Stetcher simply got out of the ring and walked away. How well, is that for a fucking attempt? <laughs> that was so gangster. I love that so much, and I'm now mad at Stetcher that he just shit on it by walking away. He should have realized what greatness he was in front of and just dropped the title, man. Yeah, that was another situation that was, again, if this was a mob movie, this is where they they escort you in for the meeting, and you know, you're like Tommy in Goodfellas, where you see the empty room and go, ah, boom, and that's that's it for you, because that's what they were clearly trying to, uh, to do to old Joe Stetcher on that day. Yeah, well, that's some pageantry, man. I love the I love the the approach with the bait and switch on the opponent, and then okie doke in the referee. But man, you gotta smell smell something because you're not that over to get eleven thousand five hundred against mystery opponent. I mean that like that smells like they're trying to they're trying to cross you up there. And that's what they were trying to do. And the announcer shouted with excitement that Malkowitz was the new world champion via forfeit. The Birmingham News article quote, Joe Stetcher gets tangled in squabble. Champ refuses to wrestle Malkowitz at Boston and near riot results. 
Stetcher immediately held a press conference telling his side of the story, claiming he'd wrestle Malkowitz if it wasn't an obvious screw job. The public didn't pay much attention to the drama one way or the other. Stetcher said, quote, it was a distinct frame up all around. So Malkowitz claimed the title in Boston and claimed for his entire career that Stetcher was afraid of him. And another little fun thing, Paul Bowser also claimed that Joe Malkowitz was the true champ for a different reason after this, claiming that Malkowitz had beaten Earl Caddick four days before Caddick lost the title to Joe Stetcher, fudging the date of their match from 1921 instead of the actual 1919. So they're reaching for every possible way to screw Stetcher on this when he didn't fall into the trap, because I don't think that Stetcher was really worried about losing legitimately to um, Melgowitz. He was concerned about the referee, because when you control the referee, you control the outcome. Oh, yeah. No, totally. They, I mean, they... It sounds like they really had that thing planned out, even in the way that they they pitched it well, where he that he failed to wrestle their guy and he was scared and he so he forfeited the title. And then they have the backup thing. And by the way, we beat the champ before he lost the. But now we have three guys claiming to be the champ, right? And another thing from that story to keep in mind for later is he who controls the ref controls the match, controls the title. Just keep that one in the back of your head for how this story unfolds. And Joe Stetcher, he was very active as champion, and for nearly a year, he didn't even entertain the idea of wrestling Ed Lewis or John Pesek. I don't think that he was afraid of them, kind of same thing in this story, but he didn't want to get bogged down with the drama and intrigue and bad press that came with it all. He just wanted to be a world-class wrestler working constantly and making money, and I can respect that. He didn't want all the drama, all the bullshit, all the things he'd been dealing with for the past few years since he came back full-time. He just wanted to wrestle four times a week and make money, and I respect that. I respect that, too, and it also, it just hit me, man. It sucks, because even here at the origins of, like, what we know to be pro wrestling now, like kayfabe and works and, you know, sports entertainment and all that shit, um, is being... The, the greatest good of what the art could be in any given time in the business, I mean, even back then, is being dictated by these personal feuds and vendettas that are superseding what's best, truly best for business. Because instead of everyone being somewhat on the same page, at least enough to try to get the best possible matches in the ring, it's like, we have to win. It's our guys versus their guys, and so many great opportunities are squandered because of all these petty fucking you know promoter battles of which you and i are never wrong by the way when we're in petty promoter battles but i'm <laughs> just saying as a general rule you know yeah and that's something you see in wrestling you see that in fighting and boxing it's something you'll see all the time and promoters were salivating to make those kind of matches offering up to 50,000 to make it happen from late March through early April, the Stetcher aligned promoters met in Omaha, Tony Stetcher, Tom Pax from St. Louis, Lou Darrow from LA, Joe Coffey from Chicago, Omaha's Gene Malady, Aurelio Fabiani out of Philadelphia. The meeting was to establish the rules for moving title matches from city to city, how promoters working together should dictate storylines and title changes. Not in the hands of a single manager or management company like it had been for the last few years. This is another instance where the future of wrestling was being born as the concept of a territory system was starting to come together. Yeah, and it's funny because some things like they fade and they go away and it, it's, it's like everything's in a circle, right? The, the territory model comes out of the response of sort of the tyrannical king not giving up his crown and then and holding things off and then they work together and then people get power and then it becomes another tyrannical king and it's cool to see the formation that they're trying to establish a working relationship with one another because that's the only way this can really work and <laughs> god i love this one too on April 1st, Ed Lewis gets into yet another car accident in Chicago, which of course led to Lewis getting into a fight with the other driver, 52-year-old Charles Wheeler. The police arrived to find Lewis choking the fuck out of Wheeler. The Burlington Daily News was very cheeky about the situation Lewis was in. Quote, his opponent, 
Charles S. Wheeler, 52-year-old broker, is proud of mind and sore of body, proud because family history will record that he engaged the strangler and sore as a result of the drubbing tactics of Lewis. Spectators, who saw the affair without paying, said honors were even when 800 pounds of policemen broke the strangler's famous hold from Wheeler's neck. I mean, first of all, don't fuck with the champ. What do you think's gonna happen if you're just some muggle and you step into Strangler Lewis? Second of all, he's been in like the first, two of the first nine auto accidents in the history of automobiles. Yeah, you'd think he would stop driving at this point. He's nearly blind, he's being sued, he keeps getting arrested. Stop driving, you blind maniac. The two men shook hands and apologized in court, so all charges were dropped. Wheeler was quoted as saying, quote, if I had known who that big gorilla was, I wouldn't have tried it. <laughs> that is a wise man. You know what? And congratulations to him for surviving. And I just want to point out from our drama article earlier where Santa died. This guy's eight years younger fighting a strangler than the matchup that, that killed Santa. So, you know, Chicago <laughs> is somewhat appeased. Chicago breeds him tough. And on the 5th of the same month, Lewis beat Wayne Munn in Boston, followed by a hot run in Chicago with a win over Toots Mont. It's kind of the same old, same old. And this came to an end on June 19th when Chicago created a boxing and wrestling commission and all wrestling and amateur boxing shows canceled until the promoters applied for licenses. So now we have another boxing commission, another wrestling commission stepping in and saying, we're going to do things legitimately under a microphone microscope and everything is canceled until you bastards give us money and some control over what you're doing. This will have a big impact on Chicago just like it did in New York. Yeah, so basically it's just another example of the government saying give us money to do what you're already doing. You know, this is a you know, this is pro prohibition of the hippodromes will not stand. On April 29th at the St. Louis Coliseum, Tom Pax promoted Joe Stetcher versus John Pesek. Finally, these two men are meeting up for a title match. Pesek won the first fall in three hours and 15 seconds Ooh. with a double wrist lock. Stetcher got the second with a double chicken wing at 33 minutes, 56 seconds. And in the third, Stetcher picked up Pesek for a slam, but Pesek wiggled free, fell through the ropes onto his head, and was counted out, and he was knocked out. Pesek was taken to the local hospital, and Stetcher was detained by police until Pesek was cleared of any serious injuries. The fall was declared an accident, and Stetcher retained as champion. So... We are seeing, again, that keep a man strong by we each split a win and then somebody falls on their head. And we're also seeing this fun little uh, game that Stetcher, clearly I've, I found enough of these that I know it's a work because Stetcher was constantly being arrested and detained until the doctors cleared his opponents. So it really does build him up both as a sympathetic baby face because it's like, oh, I hurt this man, but I didn't mean to. And then the police release him and it almost makes the the cops, the heels uh, persecuting this, uh, this pure champ who didn't mean to hurt anyone. He's just trying to win in there. Gosh darn it. Yeah, he's got that, that proto Stone Cold thing of getting that baby face getting arrested. That's awesome. But yeah, I mean... He's a, he's a hell of a worker, man. I mean, he's got it. He's got his flavor. Cause for one, when you tell me that the first fall is for three hours, that does not smell like a work. Cause I ain't trying to work for three hours for the first fall, bro. Yeah, it's it, there are some some matches like this, and some we're talking about where I kind of feel like we're, this is where we're gonna end up during the worked falls. Yeah. But you know what? How about you and me take a shot on this first one? How about you and me? We'll we'll take we'll take a shoot poke at each other, and uh, then the rest of it'll be working. So we're doing two out of three. If you win the first or I win the first, who gives a shit? But then we'll have our follow-ups where we'll work, keep it short, tell the story. But first, let's have a little fun, you and me. So we'll see that both uh, good and bad in the, uh, in, the, in the coming years in the pro wrestling world. And in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, according to Dr. H.G. Dolls of Jefferson City, stating that Pesek suffered a slight concussion of the brain which had only temporarily incapacitated him. He stated that Pesek would be all right today and would suffer no after effects whatsoever, you know, as concussions will do. So I love the, 
it's like, was that old timey medicine or just a work on a brain shot where it's like, oh, don't worry. It was just a mild concussion. He'll be fine tomorrow. It's like, no, that's sweetie. That's not how brains work. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, yeah, this is back in the era when it was like, you know, once he can like, I don't know, remember where he is, your brain's all better, son. Right. Like, yes, this is far before the advancements in CTE, but Chongo knows one thing about concussions and that's some, what were we talking about? I don't remember either, but hey, I don't even know how I got in this room. No, I've never been hit in the head before. Yes, that's right. Oh, yes, yes. Concussions, yeah, don't get those. They're not, they're not fun, boys and girls. Jim Londos was becoming one of the biggest stars in wrestling as well, and he and Stetcher were putting on barn burners, like on June 10th at the Philadelphia Municipal Stadium, where they drew 15,000 people. <sighs> Once again, you get a hot baby face with a good belt, good run, good matches. It's going to be hot stuff. And another one on June 16th at the Olympic Auditorium, Joe Stetcher with another two straight falls win over, of all men, the legend himself, Ivan Podubny. The Los Angeles Evening Post record described it as, quote, one of the cleverest and most scientific matches they had ever seen, but it lacked that speed and action, which is shocking when you have a nearly 60-year-old Greco-Roman man in the ring. It's a much <laughs> more positive response from the press than the, than you killed Santa. <laughs> like, you didn't just kill the business, you killed all hippodromes of all time. There's no more money for teeth, there's no more Easter bunny baskets and things, that's, that's how bad these guys exposed the business, but apparently L.A. was cool with it. And during his tour, Podubny allegedly made half a million dollars while wrestling in the U.S., but was screwed out of the money that was deposited in a bank account he could not access because he was not a citizen, so he went home mostly empty-handed. That is some fucked up hippodromery right there. Yeah, we'll pay you half a million dollars. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's very similar to what Curly did to Hackenschmidt with the, oh, here's a, here's a little bit of money. We'll send the rest when you get home on the other side of the ocean when there are no airplanes. Dude, checks in the mail. That is some vicious shit. No, you have to believe me. I was in America and they paid me half a million dollars. And here's a weird one. July 1st at the Outdoor Braces Field in Boston, Ed Strangler Lewis versus Joe Malkowitz. So two guys who claim to be the real champ facing off despite Stetcher being the real champ. And it drew 10,000 and the two split falls before time ran out. So neither men had to relinquish their claim to a title they didn't actually possess. Well, I'll tell you this. That's what I bet on for the on the uh, parlay. So I know that me and Sandow probably had the only two winning tickets on that finish. <laughs> and summer was the typical wrestling summer, light on important matches with Stetcher defending his title constantly against C-listers. Speaking of his title, from the pictures I can find, it does look like he broke out the expensive title belt his fans had presented him years ago in Omaha. The belt may be just a prop in wrestling, but it is an important prop. It's real to me, damn it. And you know what? If we don't have a championship belt, then how do we know who we need to hate on in the locker room and be jealous of and also beat up when they uh when they're down and getting heat? Ooh, that is a very good point. Kind of hard to do the uh ref looking away um belt shot to the head if you don't have a belt. Yeah, but if the refs had enough concussions, he might not remember. August 2nd, Ed Lewis versus Joe Malkowitz in Tulsa. Malkowitz won the first fall, then was DQ'd in the second for throwing Lewis out of the ring, and the crowd was pissed. The crowd was chanting for the ref to restart the third fall until the police sent them packing. The Moline Dispatch the next day printed, Another wrestler uses Mun tactics on Lewis, so they're still doing callbacks to this spot, practically calling it the Mun spot, where Lewis gets pitched over the ropes and is too hurt to get back in. But it's still working. I mean, they got the police. Oh, yeah. And the crowd's pretty much ready to riot over it. So, yeah, I mean, if it works, it works. Doesn't matter how old a trick it is, if the crowd's still falling for it. Yes, Marks. <laughs> And things got crazy in L.A. that summer. I find myself saying, this is wild, this is crazy, but this year was bananas at every turn. 
the Stetchers and Sandow were going head-to-head -head in Los Angeles. The difference was Lou Darrow working with the Stetchers in the Olympic Auditorium, while Sandow worked with promoter John De Palma in the nearby industrial town of Vernon. Stetcher was, quote, training for a big match against John Pesek, and Sandow started talking shit. He posted a $5,000 bond with the California Athletic Commission and stated that Lewis would, quote, meet Stetcher in some telephone booth to settle the matter once and for all. This is funny because they're now resorting to trust-busting tactics now that they're on the other side of things. So Sandow is now in the position of doing what trust-busters had been doing to him for years, but now he didn't have a uh, John Pesek to, uh, you know, go go make an attempt. It's a situation where, you know, you you're up, you're down, but now you're on the position of trying to use those old carny tricks. Who knows how well they're going to work, like well, I guess I do. Well, I would assume that they're going to work about as well as they possibly could because who better could pull that off than the guy who had that done to him more than anyone else to this point? And seemingly to Sandow's shock, Stetcher agreed and posted his own 5,000 bond. So it was either deliver the match or lose your bond for both men. A meeting with Lewis and Sandow, De Palma and Darrow hammered out the details for everyone's cut. Despite his, we can do it on the street right now, motherfucker, bluster, Lewis now needed time to prepare for such a match and wouldn't be ready until the end of September. So on August 25th, John Pesek and Joe Stetcher went to a two-hour draw. The crowd was bored by what they saw in the ring, with stalling and a lot of feeling out. I half suspect the two Bohemian Nebraskans... Nebraskoids, might have had a friendly shoot match instead of a work. Again, it's like, well, this match doesn't mean a whole lot. We're pals. Let's just kind of fucking feel it out, do it for real in there. And, uh, you know, maybe it was something where it's like, we're going to do one fall. This is going to be the finish. But between you and me, there's going to be a few moments where you know I got you. Yeah, totally. And then, like, it's funny because they doubled down. They basically... Out of all the times I've I've told somebody, you know, I've talked out of my ass and been like, oh, yeah, prove it. And if they prove it, like, I don't blame him. He healed off. He's like, well, I didn't mean today, today. On August 31st, Mike Romano gets his face smashed in a match against Ed Lewis. Ringside doctors stopped the match because Romano was bleeding from the nose and the mouth. I assume it was Ebola. That's so, Raymond. Dr. Lloyd Mace, state commission medical advisor, pronounced him unfit to continue after the first fall. Get excited because on the same show, Wayne Munn got a big win over Howard Cantonwine. It's good to see the big lug get a W via what else, but a crotch hold scoop slam that left Cantonwine KO'd on the canvas in 9 minutes and 45 seconds. Yes, you can't unwind until you drop a can of whoop-ass on Canton wine. But they're building, yeah, you know, he's in the wings, man. That is the guy. And I, I, I'm really hoping that Sandow is lining all this up and he's not, he's playing possum. That's what my, my, my carny heart is hoping for and my spider sense is telling me, brother, because I don't believe this man would have just dropped off in his chest. Ability. He didn't lose a single move until he lost control. And now it's like everybody's outsmarting him. I can't see that being, I feel like he's got some, you know, Darth Sidious masterstroke behind waiting to unveil. Someone who didn't get a big win in September was Jack Dempsey. On September 23rd, Dempsey took an absolute beating from Gene Tunney in Philadelphia, losing a 10-round fight that probably would have resulted in Dempsey being KO'd if it went any longer. It was Dempsey's first loss since 1918 and was the beginning of the end to his career. At the end of September, Ed Lewis announced that he broke his elbow and couldn't compete against Stetcher in time. Darrow had already sold a ton of tickets and was short on options, so he did the best he could. He put Stetcher and Pesek together for a third match on October 6th at the Olympic Auditorium. 
The first fall went to Stetcher after a boring 41-minute battle. The second was much more exciting and ended with Pesic catching Stetcher in 21 minutes with a head scissor and wrist lock. Again, I kind of half suspect that first fall was them kind of shooting on each other. Again, these are men who had known each other for close to a decade. They had trained together. They were from the same cultural and regional background. So it seems like the sort of thing friends would do during a match. But in the third... Things got wild. Real wild. Has it been too long since our last double cross? Well, good news, everyone. Pesic legit went after Stetcher in the third, and it wasn't even close. The ref saved Stetcher from one hold when Tony Stetcher yelled to the ref that Pesic was using the head scissors as a stranglehold. The ref broke it up, much to the confusion of the audience. Pesic made Stetcher submit for real from a wrist lock, which the ref ignored. So Pesic switched to a double chicken wing. And according to Jeff Pesic, John's grandson, told Stetcher, Listen, Joe, you give up or I'm going to bust your damn arm. Referee Tommy Travers declared Pesic the winner. Then once he was out of the ring and backstage, he awarded the match to Stetcher on a foul. Not sure if the ref was just confused, waiting for Pesic to leave to walk it back, or worried that if he didn't declare Pesic the winner, Pesic would pull his arm off as well. Who knows? Either way, the crowd booed and threw trash in the ring as Pesic ran out the back to his car to avoid any kind of confrontation or in-ring ring start. Looking back, I'm sure he wished he'd stuck around. In the Pomona Progress Bulletin, wins and losses wrestle title. Fans and referee disagree in Pesic Stetcher match. Champ still champ. The article goes over Pesic pinning Stetcher multiple times in the third, but the ref not counting them. The referee reversed the call, claiming an illegal stranglehold was used that nobody saw because it probably didn't exist. He reversed his call and Stetcher was still champ and the 10,000 fans nearly rioted. The referee who worked for the Stetchers changed his mind and DQ'd the no longer present Pesic for strangling the champ. What a wild ride in the auditorium. Yes, and that is a perfect example of why controlling the referee is so important for one. But yeah, as far as why the referee changed his decision? I'm going to go with option C. If he's about to chicken wing the champ, what's he about to do to a zebra? Yeah, it's something where Pesek decided to do what uh, do what he'd been wanting for a long time. He'd been kind of promised titles by several men. He'd been promised top spots by several promoters. Sandow always kept him at his distance because he was he was too dangerous to belt up in case he didn't want to do business afterwards. He found himself in that same position with the Stetchers, though I'm sure without the promise of a title drop. So he decided to finally take what he felt was his, to take something he knew he could take, and just shot on uh, shot on Stetcher. I have heard versions of the story where Stetcher, you know, while being, uh, you know, while being locked up, said in Bohemian, what are you doing? And Pesek replied, shoot fight. Whoa, dude, that is, there needs to be like a, a movie about a wrestling angle where it turns into a shoot and he says shoot fight in a foreign language and then it's fucking on. That's tight. The Los Angeles Evening Post record on October 7th, Stetcher Pesic purse held up. Purses of John Pesic and Joe Stetcher, principals in a wrestling match here last night that ended in a near riot, were ordered withheld by Chairman Seth Strellinger of the State Athletic Commission. October 14th, Shelton Clipper, Oscar Kirsch, one of Pesic's managers, made a big statement about Pesic winning and being the best wrestler in the world and everyone knew it and that Tony Stetcher threatened the referee into reversing the decision and how it will all be sorted by the athletic commission. Pesic claimed he was given the winner's purse and therefore deserved the title. In front of the commission, nobody's stories lined up, so nothing much came of it. So now we have four people claiming to be the champion. We have Lewis with his old belt, despite losing to Munn. We have Stasiak claiming he was the winner because he didn't quite screw over Stetcher. We have Stetcher, who is 
technically the legitimate champ. And now we have Pesic, who legitimately screwed over Stetcher and won the match. It was reversed. The title is now very, very murky. And Stetcher is still technically the champ, but now there's a lot of dirt on it. Now there's a lot of grime from the press coming his way. Yeah, and I, you know what? I just want to go back to it. There's one guy that's been on the periphery that's kept all of this shit off of him that if they need to, you know, if it was me, I, I would lock all these guys in a room until we could make a decision. I would put all those belts and, like, unify them and put them on, uh, I'd put them on toots, man. That would have been a smart move, but just things were so fractured at this point. Yeah. People were fighting in different directions. Too much was at stake for proper creative decisions. And John Pesek, he arrived home in Ravenna to a crowd cheering him on, the high school band playing, all celebrating his win and rallying against the Stetchers who robbed Pesek of his rightful place as champion. So, again, what exactly happened? Who knows? Maybe Pesek still had ties to Sandow that weren't public. Maybe it was a one-time payoff to get the belt away from Stetcher. Maybe it was just pure resentment after years of being Lewis's policeman and seeing someone he thought a lesser wrestler with the belt. It's insane that this didn't kill Pesek's career flat. Some places thought he was too dangerous, some thought he was a washed-up jobber, and now he proved that he can't be trusted with top guys, much like Zabisco had been. One thing historians and experts agree on is the damage this did to Joe Stetcher's view of himself. He had spent years considering himself the best shoot wrestler, the best legitimate wrestler, and he had that rug pulled right out from under him in a very public way. So he'd been thinking he was legitimately a guy who could beat Pesek, could beat Lewis, could beat Zabisco. He was walking around carrying himself as a legitimate world champion in a worked sport. And he had that ripped away by John Pesek in front of thousands of people and in front of the press. So the paper tiger champion versus the tiger man. And he saw what was truly in, inside of him. And, it, you know, that's... That's a thing that sucks for some champions because, like, that's like the thing in Rocky Three, right? It's like they weren't fixed fights. They was good fighters, but they were hand-picked because the business model is predicated on keeping the champ putting food on the table when, they, when times are good. You don't want that champ to lose. Look at, like, a Ronda Rousey situation. Because as soon as they lose, it breaks their, their psyche and their mystique. Exactly. But there was still the match that everyone wanted, and that was Stetcher and Lewis. But on October 8th, Ed Lewis showed up at the Athletic Commission office and told them the Stetcher match was off, that he hated Los Angeles, and was willing to lose his $5,000 bond to get the hell out of California. According to the Kansas City Times, Quote, he gave his reasons that he did not like the way the Stetcher-Pesic match was handled and spoke in no uncertain terms his feelings against Stetcher and Lou Darrow. I kind of half wonder if they thought this could be a great way to establish their claim as the legitimate championship because of that screw job Pesic did that was reversed and they thought they could re-legitimize their own title. I don't know, not a time-traveling mind reader, but if I was uh, going to be doing something, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, or maybe, do you think maybe they, there was an element of trying to get the match relocated, potentially? Ooh, it's funny that you bring that up, because Sandow would appeal and ask for the Stetcher-Lewis match to be transferred to another state, along with his $5,000 bond. The oh. Athletic Commission decided to do otherwise and split it between Lou Darrow and Joe Stetcher. I hope they had fun spending Sandow's money. Yes, but you know, I, I smelled the Sandow and I liked the work. He was trying to pull him back. If he could have got that transferred over and gotten that into a friendly location, maybe he could have pulled a little, uh, you know, a little double cross type action himself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is why we keep talking about if you control the referee, you control mm -hmm. the title. They found that out when they tried to double-cross Stetcher, and they found out again when Pesek tried to double-cross Stetcher during a shoot. So, you know, if, if the referee had been on uh, Pesek's side or neutral, Pesek would go down in history as the world champ having beaten Joe Stetcher. Yeah, this is, a, this is a very interesting the way this chess game is playing out. The threats to the belt are so often much more dangerous behind the curtain than what the people actually see in the ring.
The Vernon Arena, where promoter John De Palma dreamed of hosting the Stetcher vs. Lewis title unification match, never held another wrestling show and would burn to the ground the following summer. They hoped the territory would be on fire instead of the building, but that's life, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I lived in L.A. for 10 years, and I've never even heard of Vernon. Like, so yeah, it, 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 and so it was a weird spot because it was far outside of Los Angeles proper. It was an industrial area. It's the sort of place where very working class people go to toil in a factory and then catch the train home. There were very few actual residents there, so it was a bad business move, but it was all that Sandow could really put together in Lou Darrow's backyard. I'm sure the NFL can relate, darling. On November 19th, Ivan Podubny loses to Tommy Drack in 13 minutes, according to the New York Times and the Montreal Gazette the following day. The only reason I even bring this match up is it's mentioned in Marcus Griffith's Fall Guys, The Barnums of Bounce, where he claimed that this was a shoot loss for Podubny, making Stetcher look bad by taking so long to beat him in a work earlier in the year. There are a lot of problems with this book, and that's why I wanted to kind of bring it up, even though it is a source material for the show is Marcus Griffin was a insider in the wrestling business in the 30s who decided to write a muckraking book about the inner workings of wrestling and expose the business. And there is a lot of good information on there. It was very groundbreaking for its time, but there's also a lot of exaggeration and bullshit. It's very much the guy who's a mid-level manager behind the scenes in wrestling had a couple drinks in him and is just telling self-aggrandizing stories at the bar so while it is an important piece of muckraking journalism an important look into the wrestling business at the time every story cannot be trusted at face value well that's the problem with with the hippodrome express and the nature of what we're doing is sometimes the drunken rambling of a of a exaggerating would-be fisherman that never caught shit in his life is all the record that remains, darling. On December 19th, 1926, Ed Lewis and Mike Romano had a match for Stetcher-aligned promoter Ray Fabiani, which shows that the business stand-up was starting to cool down to a certain extent because we are seeing talent from one side working on the other, the title match obviously not happening, but it does seem like they are trying to work towards a common goal of making a lot of money together. There was just a lot of a lot of walls, a lot of barriers, a lot of hurt feelings to get past, but things were starting to go in that direction. But there were hurt feelings. On January 27th, 1927, according to Steve Yohei's biography about Lewis, Toots Mont put over Joe Malkowitz and a blow-up between Mont and Sandow happened backstage. On March 12th, Collier's Eye printed a claim that Toots split from Sandow in order to get a shot at the title, since Sandow also managed Lewis, who was still claiming to be the real champion. And this feels, this is storyline. This a lot of people read into it because things were not good behind the scenes, but this is clearly good storyline storytelling where you bring Mont in under contract and you have a firm control over his career, but you're not going to get the same shot against the champion if you're under contract with the champion's manager. So you have a big blowout and you're storming out on your own. You're now the renegade and working against Sandow and Lewis, which is good storytelling if it actually went anywhere and paid off because backstage in the, you know, in the, in the kayfabe world of the office, there had been an internal struggle between Max Bauman and Toots Mont. Max Bauman being Sandow's brother who no longer managing Pesic had a lot more time to be involved in that central booking in that office, being in his brother's ear, probably saying Toots Mont's ideas are garbage. I want his position. I want his paycheck. This guy's an asshole. Let's get rid of them. So he, there was an increasing attempt to shut out Mont by the Bauman brothers, and he was growing frustrated by the situation. I think the break from Sandow to maybe beat Lewis was Sandow trying to keep Mont happy because it was setting up a potential title win, even if it was just delaying the inevitable. Yeah, I mean, but we've seen this before. Like, it's like Paul Heyman with uh, Brock Lesnar and CM Punk, right? It's like, yeah, you're my guy, but this is my guy and he's the guy. And I'm protecting you from yourself or whatever it is until the guy's like, no, nah, man, I deserve this shot. And now you're protecting 
you've you've chosen sides and then now you are the hero exactly like if we didn't know anything about backstage we didn't know anything about their relationships we didn't know anything about the future we're just a couple of wrestling fans in 1926 early 1927 we're we're all thinking oh man now that now that mont is no longer with sandow there's nothing stopping a sandow lewis match sandow's been protecting ed lewis from mont so you would really think that you're about to see mont kind of be marching his way through the uh, the the henchmen and the B-listers for a shot at the title. That would have been brilliant booking. That would have been brilliant storytelling. But you can tell by the tenses that I am using that this was not something that was going to happen because the backstage situation was not healthy. It was not well put together. And because the Sandow group was kind of on their heels now. They had lost to the Stetcher brothers, and the Stetcher brothers kept climbing while they kept sinking. And when you're in that position, you don't always make the best decisions, both as a businessman and a human being. Well, what sucks is they made the best strategic move, right? Like, Toots was the guy. He was perfect. Like, we talked about it. The move is Toots. But the fact that the personal shit got in the way of what was best for the story and best for the art and the business... It's just, it sucks because that's so often the case even today. It's like, if we could just get out of our own ways where we don't have to try to like have that nepotism and get, you know, my brother a job and all that bullshit instead of what's best. And that's why they're losing now because the other side is playing ball and they've become the old guard that is unwilling to adapt. And wrestling was changing and changing fast. The East Coast was opening up to wrestling again. The facade of champions setting up week-long training camps before matches was gone because the champ would be booked more frequently with shorter main events. The 90-minute title match was becoming a thing of the past because Stetcher was wrestling four or five times a week. Also gone were the days when a wrestler or his manager controlled their own destiny. Now a loose association of promoters were creating a new power system with themselves, not the champion at top. Wrestling was also becoming a lot sillier. Main events were constantly treated as serious affairs, but the undercard were filled with colorful characters flying out of the ring and brawling through the crowd. Main events were consistently treated as a serious affair, but the undercard was filling up with colorful characters flying out of the ring and brawling through the crowd. In this new world of wrestling, would it be the Stetchers or Sandow that controlled the game, or would things change even more than either could expect? And we'll find out next time, because this is where we're coming to a close this time. The year 1926 is bleeding into the beginning of 1927, and if you think things are wild and things are changing at a fast pace, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's the way things go, man. It's like the evolutionary snowball of the thing. Once once that Pandora's box is open and they've, they've now established sort of the base structure of what we know of today. Serious, serious main event, entertaining undercard, lots of matches, not going as long, protect the business, like keep guys healthy. You're starting to see it unshaken. I bet it's about to hippodrome into overdrive next year, darling. Yes, the story keeps going. The story of wrestling becomes wilder at every turn. And we have some stories for you next time that are going to curl your hair, straighten your hair if it's curly, turn it gray or turn it back to black or red or blonde if it's already gray. It's going to be that crazy, but that's for next time. Make sure you are following us on Twitter, liking us on Facebook, checking out our Instagram, because I love finding these silly old articles and posting it there. If you feel like kicking in a, a dollar for this episode for our research funds, the Venmo is there in the description. I'll keep doing this show for free no matter what, but boy, books are expensive as are access to newspaper vaults. But for now, I'm glad you were here with us. I'm glad we were here with you. And for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Cut print martini.